0: How many of y'all have ever seen a really simple idea that has become wildly popular and you think to yourself, why didn't I think of that? Anybody had that experience? Like, for example, wheels on a suitcase. That's genius, right? Why didn't I think of that? Apparently, the guy who actually did think of that was in an airport, just like you or I, and was lugging around a heavy piece of luggage and saw a worker there who was moving a large piece of equipment on a furniture dolly, which is basically a piece of wood with wheels underneath it. And he thought, well, why wouldn't that work on a suitcase? And voila, the wheeled suitcase was born. Just a simple observation. Or, or let's go back in time a little bit. How many of you know what the slinky is? All right, all right, that's good. So that was invented by a naval engineer who was developing springs for, me- for uh, military instruments. One day, working in his office, he had one of those springs and he dropped it. And when he did, it went slinky from one book to the next, to the table, to the floor, and he thought, that's kind of a fun little toy. So he went to the bank and got a $500 loan, built 400 of those springs, went to a department store to demonstrate them, and sold out of his inventory in 90 minutes. That was 1943, and there have been 300 million Slinkies sold since that day. It's amazing. These are the examples of creative genius that just happen in everyday life. Wildly popular ideas that are born out of simple observation, which is probably the main reason we didn't come up with the idea on our own. Because we're so busy moving through life at such a pace, we don't stop long enough just to observe what is happening around us. We're too busy living off of everyone else's great ideas to come up with any of our own. And I think what is true in everyday life is often true in our spiritual life as well. We can move through life at such a fast pace that we don't stop long enough to see what God is doing all around us we miss out on those divine appointments that take place in everyday life last week we were introduced to a man named Philip and Philip gives us a great example of what it looks like to to carry out the work of God in everyday life he's a simple man who walks in in faithful obedience And through his obedience, God does some really amazing things. You see, Philip was just a man who listened, who listened to what God had to say. He was a man who was willing to go wherever God might lead. His obedience was relational. It was sometimes risky, but it was always rewarding. And Philip gives us such a great example. Of what it looks like to faithfully follow God. In everyday life. So we're going to look at his story as it continues. Before we do that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord I'm excited about opening your word this morning. And looking at the life of a simple man named Philip. I think somebody that everyone in this room can relate to. An everyday man. Who sees your hand at work in everyday life. And Lord we confess that so often we don't see that because we don't stop long enough to look for it. You've promised us that you were always at work in the world around us. I pray that this morning you might use your word to open our eyes to see that work in new, fresh ways. Ways that move us to be involved in the work that you're already doing in ways that bring praise and glory to your name. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 8, and we'll pick up where we left off last in verse 26. Acts chapter 8, verse 26. It says, But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go south to the road that descends... From Jerusalem to Gaza, this is a desert road, and he arose and went. I want to just pause there briefly just to make note of the fact that, that what is being asked of Philip here, this obedience that he has, is risky. The angel of the Lord is instructing him to go back to the very place that he just fled from persecution, Jerusalem. This would be like Christians who are fleeing persecution in the Middle East, returning back to places now occupied by ISIS. This is a dangerous move. But notice it's one in which he does not hesitate. Verse 27 says, simply he arose and went. He was quick to obey. Now, the other thing to keep in mind that I think makes this even more remarkable is there is an amazing ministry going on Samaria. There's a spiritual revival that's happening among the Samaritan people. A revival that was initiated because of Philip's ministry. And as you think about that, you you might think that's where God would want him to be. And if you're Philip, it's probably where you want to be. Enjoying the, the success of a ministry that you've been able to be a leading part in. And yet, Philip was undistracted by either his success or his fear. Instead, he looked to God, he listened to God, and he was quick to obey. He arose and went, even when that obedience was risky. Look at how it continues. Uh, Verse 27. And he arose and went, and behold, there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, sitting in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Let's begin by understanding a little bit more about the Ethiopian eunuch. And let's start with where he's from. Ethiopia was a region just south of Egypt. In the Bible, it's often used a term used, uh, Cush. Cush describes the territory of the Ethiopian eunuch. Today, it's what we know as the African region of Sudan. So this man was of Nubian descent, which means he was black. This particular particular Ethiopian eunuch was uh, the Ministry of Finance. He was in charge of all the, the queen's treasure, which means he would have been a pretty wealthy man himself. We know that's the case. Because he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah while riding on a chariot in a chariot on his way home. Now, back in that time, you did not have a personal scroll, nor did you ride in a chariot unless you had a lot of money. So the eunuch was a wealthy man who made a remarkable journey. In fact, that journey from Sudan to Jerusalem would have taken five months, one way. Across a waterless desert. We learn that he makes this very long journey in order to worship God. So, in biblical terms, he's what would be called a God-fearer. Okay? That's a term used uh, to describe people who are not of Jewish descent, but who worship the Jewish God. A God-fearer. It's important to also know that this eunuch would have been required to worship God from a distance. No matter how wealthy he might have been, he would not have been allowed onto the temple grounds. He would have gone into the court of the Gentiles. That's as close as he could get. He would have been separated by boundaries of race, of ethnicity, and of religion. As a eunuch, he was likely neutered, emasculated, so that he was Unable to produce children. And therefore, as a eunuch, he would have been considered unclean by the religious system. Again, preventing him from drawing near in his worship. And yet, none of those boundaries kept him from moving in as close as he could get. Look at how it continues in verse 29. And the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And when Philip had run up, he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come and sit with him. So it's interesting here that God has called Philip from the multitudes, okay? There's a revival going on in Samaria, and he calls him from the multitudes to minister to one man, an individual, a man who is sincerely seeking to understand. We can see it from this encounter. He's reading from the book of Isaiah, and he's reading out loud because Philip can hear what he's reading. That's not uncommon in that time because they're reading out loud typically to memorize the passage that they are involved in. So as Philip approaches the chariot, I want you to notice that he did not speak until he listened. He wanted to see where God was at work before he did the work of God. He went up to the chariot, heard the eunuch reading, and because Philip knew the scripture, he had spent time in that very same passage himself, I'm sure, he knew that he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip knew God's word, but he was not so quick to presume that he had all the answers. He's quick to listen, slow to speak, and the very first words that came out of his mouth were a question. He asked the man, do you understand what you're reading? It's a gentle way of saying, does your heart understand what your mind is memorizing? The humble response of the eunuch says something about him as well. He says, no, how am I going to understand unless someone guides me? (laughs) Thus, the divine appointment they begin reviewing the passage in Isaiah together. So if you would, look at verse 32. Now the passage of Scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered and Philip and, and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Uh, Of himself or or someone else? Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. So if you would, go ahead and turn over to Isaiah chapter 53, beginning in verse 7. We're just going to enter into this conversation that Philip has with the Ethiopian eunuch. So Isaiah chapter 3, Beginning in verse 7. As you look at verse 7, you can see that that was what was quoted there in our passage in Acts. And the eunuch wants to know very simply, who is Isaiah talking about? Now, keep in mind, he's asking this question 750 years later after Isaiah wrote these words. So he's looking back 750 years ago and he's saying, okay, when he wrote these words, who's he describing? It says, beginning with this scripture, Philip preached Jesus to the eunuch. So I think it's safe to assume he didn't reserve his conversation to these two scriptures alone. He just began here. And Philip answered the eunuchs' question. He says, the prophet Isaiah is describing Jesus Christ. Beginning in verse 7, he explains that Jesus was the lamb who was led to the slaughter, a sacrificial lamb who silently received what he unjustly deserved. It was delivered unfairly. The whole trial of Jesus was a scam. It it took place behind closed doors with with no clear evidence. When the religious leaders couldn't get the verdict that they wanted, they made one up. They said that Jesus was trying to incite a, a, a a revolution against Rome which was not true. It was an unfair trial filled with false testimony and fabricated accusations. Jesus was humiliated. He was wrongly accused. And he was unjustly killed. That's why it says there at the end of verse 8. He was cut off from the living. And notice why. If you read at the end there of verse 8, For the sins of the people to whom the stroke was due. In other words, Jesus, the one who was innocent. (laughs) Took the punishment for those who were guilty. Now, with this in mind, I want us to keep reading into verse nine. Says his grave was assigned with wicked man. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. We know that Jesus was an innocent man. He was crucified on a cross in between two thieves. And when he was taken from that cross, he was placed in a borrowed tomb, a tomb belonging to a wealthy man. He was crucified with the wicked. He was buried with the rich, just like Isaiah said he was. And all of those facts, Philip would have known firsthand. He knew about the injustice. He knew about the cross. He knew about the one who knew no sin, who became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The person Isaiah is describing is Jesus. Look at how it continues in verse 10. It gets better. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The crucifixion of Christ was pleasing to God because it was a sacrifice sufficient for forgiveness of our sins. The punishment we deserved was put on him. We are the guilty the stroke was for. God was not pleased to just see Jesus die. God was pleased because he knew the death of Christ was the means by which we can have eternal life. Notice in verse 10, it says that the Lord will prolong his days. Even even after death, even after his offering, he will see his offspring. In other words, death will not be the end. What Isaiah is describing here is the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. A victory over death that gives us the hope of eternal life. The offspring... that that he's referring to are those who put their faith in Christ. The Bible is clear. To as many as believe him, as, as receive him, to them he gives the right to become what? Children of God. You become a part of the family of God through faith in Christ alone. The Scripture says you are a joint heir with Jesus Christ so that what he accomplished is then credited to you. One more. Look at verse 11. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their sin. Seven hundred and fifty years before Jesus was born. Isaiah is describing exactly what Jesus would do. He is the righteous one. Who took our sin upon himself so that we can have eternal life. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through faith in Christ alone. I wonder if it's at this point that Philip turns to the eunuch and says, this could be you. Unlike what you experienced in Jerusalem, your faith in Christ removes All the boundaries between you and God. You're invited. You are invited into a relationship with God through faith in Christ alone. And here's why. There is no other name. Under heaven, given unto men by which you can be saved. Can you imagine what this conversation would have been like? As Philip walks up to this chariot and hear these words that the eunuch is reading and realizing he's reading about Jesus. This is going to be fun. I can't wait to tell him. Look at how he responds. Go back to Acts chapter 8. Look at verse 36. And as they went along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, water. Which might have been a miracle in and of itself considering where they were. But What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. See, that's all the eunuch needed to hear. His heart was searching. And Jesus was the one was looking for. His confession is clear. I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus was the one that Isaiah was pointing to. That's who he was describing. He is the promised Messiah. The one in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins. And having believed that the eunuch wastes no time in wanting to make his Faith, a public profession. They step out of the chariot and into the water. How exciting it must have been for Philip to have just met this stranger to now become a brother in Christ. Someone who trusts in the Lord and will share eternity with him in heaven. I think it was probably just as rewarding to have that experience as anything he experienced with the revival going on in Samaria. Look at how it continues in verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. After the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, his mission there was finished. It was complete, but his ministry wasn't over. It says that Philip was snatched away, ends up some 20 miles north of Gaza along the coast of the Mediterranean, and he continues from there to preach the gospel between Gaza all the way up to Caesarea. Now, if you fast forward in the book of Acts, you'll find that 20 years later, Philip is still in Caesarea. What you'll also learn is that by that time, he has four daughters. And guess what those four daughters are doing? Preaching the message of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Philip was engaged in relational ministry. Whether that took place on the roadside, whether it was with the outcasts, or a ministry within the boundaries of his own home. He didn't set out to do the work of God. He looked to see where God was already at work. He lived what I call an Ephesians 2.10 lifestyle. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that he prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Is someone who listens to what God has to say, who's willing to go wherever God might lead. Like Philip, they end up right in the middle of the good works that God prepared beforehand. As we finish up, I want you to just stop and take a minute and consider, what does that look like for you? You may remember last week I talked about my friend Kyle and his observation about the Second Reformation, a spiritual awakening when the ministry of the church is put into the hands of the people. When the church is filled with Phillips, people who are willing to be used by God wherever they may be. If you read the back of the bulletin, you're going to read one of the examples of what that looks like from just last week. It wasn't an Ethiopian eunuch, but it was a graduate student from Germany who literally was hitchhiking from one coast to the next and happened to be picked up by somebody in our church, Gary Clark. Who not only shared the gospel with him, but brought him to church the next day, and he's going to take that truth with him wherever he goes. Ministry in the moment, right where you are. That's a good example. The question is, though, what does it look like for you? What does it look like to see those divine appointments that happen in your everyday life? And I don't think it's complicated. I think God wants to work through the simple things to accomplish the amazing things. And so as you consider what it looks like, I want you to write down three things that I believe it must include for us to live faithfully where God is at work all around us. Okay, three things. Number one, you must have a compassion for people. You must have a compassion for people. Number two, You must spend time in the Word. Spend time in the Word. And then number three, you have to trust the Spirit. Compassion for people, time in the Word, trust the Spirit. It's not complicated, is it? It begins with a compassion for people, a compassion that flows out of your time with Christ so that you are able to see people through the eyes of God. Because here's the reality in and of ourselves, we're pretty selfish people, right? We don't mind living life in our own little world and just let other people take care of themselves. And if you're an introvert like me, it's easy to become, uh, it's easy to use that as as a convenient excuse, right? Well, I I don't know. I'm not really good with people. I'll just pray. Let me just say that the Lord has convicted my own life that very often that's a socially acceptable way to justify your selfishness. Part of being a child of God requires that you have a compassion for people. Stepping out of your comfort zone. And as the scripture calls us to, caring for the needs of others is more important than your own. Any meaningful ministry happens within the context of relationships. Caring for people. How many of you women were at the If Gathering the last couple of days? Okay, you remember the story. I don't remember his name. Terry shared it with me yesterday. The gentleman who talked about the encounter between Jesus and the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story? He made a great point that fits right here with what we're talking about. He's walking down the road to Emmaus. He's meeting, he meets these two disciples who do not recognize who he is. It says that in that time, Jesus begins to explain who Christ is, beginning with Moses and going through the testimony of Scripture. Can you imagine that? Jesus describing how all of the Scripture points to him. But here's the amazing thing. It didn't register. It didn't register that that's who they were walking with until they went into the home, sat down at the table, and looked eye to eye. And then when they shared that meal together, instantly they recognized that's who it is. That's Jesus. That's who he's talking about. They said, wasn't our heart burning within us as we heard him talk about how all of Scripture points to Jesus? And that's who we were sitting at at the table with. The point is, is that when you walk down the road with somebody You're both looking ahead. When you sit at the table, you're looking at each other. All meaningful ministry takes place in the context of relationships. It begins with a compassion for people. And part of caring for people is pointing them to Jesus Christ. Helping them see that Jesus is the one that their heart longs for most that as they are seeking that as they are searching he's the one that has the answers because Jesus fulfilled all of the promises that God has made to us as his people he came so that we could be rescued so that we could be restored so that we could be redeemed all of the Bible points to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ it is through him that we live with purpose. It is through him that we have a future that is filled with hope. Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. A life of ministry is a commitment to share that truth because that's the truth that you learn when you spend time in his word. All of scripture points to Jesus. It starts with the compassion for people. It includes time in his word. But ultimately, all ministry is dependent upon trusting the Spirit. As someone who believes in God's presence at work in their everyday lives, every single moment. Knowing that we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared beforehand. A life of ministry is not about doing the work of God. It's about seeing where God is already at work. It's an invitation to be involved in divine appointments in everyday life, no matter where you might be. Learning the unique way that God might want to work through your life in the place where you live. See, I'm convinced, along with my friend Kyle, that when we embrace that church, I mean that truth. When we become all that God created us to be, when the church is filled with Philips, who see the work of God right where we are, that's where we begin to see amazing things happen around the world. When the ministry of the church is put into the people of the church who carry it out in their everyday life right where they live. That's what we see with Philip. Someone who's willing to listen and go where God leads, not to do the work of God, but to see where God is already at work and to step right into it. Let me encourage us as we finish up this song. When we talk about what we're going to sing as we finish our service, Brian and I try to spend meaningful time to consider how to take what we're learning and turn it into a prayer to use the words of a song as words of commitment of what we are going to do with what we've heard so that when we leave this place, we are responding to the message of truth. So if you would, just take the time as we finish with this song and turn it into a prayer that this might describe how you live your life (coughs) moving forward based on what we see in our passage this morning. Let me close with the story of how the Lord has shown this to me in recent weeks. I confessed to you last week that I don't do a very good job of putting ministry into the hands of the people. But I am compelled to do better moving forward. Well, Some weeks and months ago, there was a group from our church, Calder Hendrickson, Bruce Shubiaka, I think the McAlpines are part of this, said, We just want to get together to pray for how God might work in the life of our church to reach those both near and far who don't know Christ. Uh, last week, <laughs> Mark Woodfin called and said, Hey, can we have lunch? So we sat down together and Mark shared with me what he and Margaret are doing as they walk neighborhoods praying for the people who live in that neighborhood. And if they meet someone along the way, they introduce themselves and tell them what they're doing and ask them if there's anything that they can be praying about. Just to introduce a conversation to share their hope in Christ. Mark went on to say, you know, I'd really love to see what this would look like if we help people that we come in contact with through the life of this church know and follow Christ. This past week, I had two conversations with two people who were invited to this church who don't know Christ but are seeking to understand just like we saw in our passage this morning. And I'm looking at all of these things, putting the pieces together and saying, okay, God, I get it. You are at work all around us and your people are involved in ministry right where they are. And you are doing great things for your name's sake. And we can be encouraged and challenged to go and do the same. And I hope that as you saying these words, that that's the life you want to live when you leave this place, because God is at work all around us. You guys are fixing to go to another country. Guess what? He's there, too. And who knows that you may be there for a conversation you're going to have with someone who you might be able to tell them about your hope in Christ. All around us. Everyday life. May we be faithful. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the work that you're doing all around us every day. And I pray for myself and I'm just going to assume that others would fit in this category and just confess and ask for forgiveness for the times that I've walked right past it because I'm too busy living in my own little world that I don't see your hand all around me. And Lord, just help us see where you're at work. Help us to have the ability to listen and the desire to follow and to be engaged in the good works that you've prepared that we can walk right in the middle of seeing your hand at work, drawing people to yourself because of your amazing love. And we get to tell that story, your grace, your forgiveness. And we get to look at the scripture just like Philip and the eunuch did, where we see stories that are now thousands of years old, pointing to what was fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for that privilege. And may we live faithfully In that hope every single day. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.